Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Hear the word of the Lord. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. Father, I pray that you would bless the preaching of your word, that this psalm would sing to us and speak to our hearts in these difficult days. In Christ's name, I ask it. Amen. The Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann says that when you look at the psalms, there are really three different kinds of psalm that you find in the book of Psalms. There are psalms of orientation, psalms of disorientation, and psalms of reorientation. And Psalm 13 is a psalm of David, the messianic king, but it's also clearly one of those songs of disorientation. It is a song of lament. It expresses the sense that things are not as they are meant to be. When the psalmist cries out to the Lord, says, how long, how long will you forget me? How long will you turn your face from me? This isn't the way the world is supposed to work. And so these words come as lament. Every lament is a plea to God. When you read a lament in the Psalms, you'll hear a complaint that's being lodged. The psalmist lays a charge, has an issue, a bone to pick. And the bone that the psalmist picks is sometimes with himself, and it's sometimes with his enemies. It's also sometimes with God as well. So we see here, it is God who is being called out, God who is being challenged. But along with the complaint, there always comes a request The psalmist doesn't just complain, he also asks for something, some kind of solution that will address the problem. He asks God to do something for him. And then there's a turn where the lament becomes praise. You see that here at the end of our text in that last stanza, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. There's a shift in emotion. We've gone from a plea to praise. And I think in that pattern, you can find a lot of the the expressions, the patterns of your own heart right now. As we are dealing with new situations, new circumstances, we're being tested and, and tried. And as a result, naturally, certain questions arise. The complaint in Psalm 13 is a complaint that I think is etched into the human psyche. 
Right? Whenever you feel abandoned, whenever you feel like you've been left on your own, there's always this desire, whatever the circumstances, to have your say, to make your case. If you've ever been in a, a breakup of a relationship or you've ever uh, been fired, you've lost a job, if you've ever had a friendship go on the rocks, one of those natural desires you have is to kind of tell the other person the way things are, to set the record straight, to let them know that uh, they're the problem. That's what the psalmist is doing here with God. He senses a distance that's opened up between himself and God. And so like we do when we feel abandoned, when we feel left alone, he goes to the person who's responsible and he makes a complaint, right? This is what you're doing, and this is what it's doing to me. And this is what they're doing as a result of what you're doing. That's the pattern. You may not have prayed a prayer like this to God, but you've definitely had a conversation like this in your life. Like, this is what you've done to me, and look at the result. Look at what I'm going through because of what you've done. And not only that, look at them. Look at the people that that we used to be united against and how they are reveling now because of what you've done. That's the pattern that we see the psalmist going through. Like, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? That's what you're doing, the psalmist says. You want to know what your problem is? You want to know what you're doing? You're forgetting me. You're forgetting me forever. And not only that, you're you're turning away. You're hiding your face from me. For the context of a psalm, that, that may seem like a strange thing to say. If you're speaking to the omniscient God who made all things and you're saying, are you going to forget me forever? It kind of seems like that's that's an obvious answer. The answer is no. How can the God who knows everything ever forget anything? But the psalmist here is not talking about forgetting in that sense. The idea of remembering and forgetting in Scripture has a special context. It breathes the air of covenant relations. Whenever you see in Scripture uh, talk about either forgetting or remembering, always think about covenant relationships. When the people of Israel, who were covenanted to God, found themselves in bondage in Egypt, their cry went up to God. And you'll find in the book of Exodus that, that the way Moses describes it is God heard them and he remembered his promise. Now, Moses isn't confused about God's omniscience. He doesn't think God is, is one of those absent-minded professor types who's always forgetting that he promised to save people. That act of memory is a covenant act. God remembering that commitment, not calling it to mind, but essentially following through on his commitments to those people. You see it in the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Not because God thinks you might forget. It's not that he knows human beings being what they are. You're going to wake up on a Sunday morning and totally forget that you're supposed to be at church. So remember the Sabbath. 
this remembrance is a covenantal act. As God's people, in gratitude, we keep the Sabbath holy. We go to him in worship. So asking God, will you forget me forever? It's like saying to him, so you're not going to keep your promises? So I'm, I'm not one of your children? So I'm not one of your chosen people? Is that what's going on here? Explain that to me. That's the accusation. Like God is being tested, is being uh, complained against as a covenant Lord. Will you forget me forever? Will you hide your face from me? And in a day when all the churches have shut their doors, and it seems like the community of God's people is no longer gathering and assembling, we've lost our sense of what it means to be a people. We face the uncertainty that we face right now. I think these are natural questions to ask. How long? How could God let this happen? Why is he keeping us apart? Why does he force us to, to stay at arm's length or, or longer? You'd need pretty long arms to stay six feet away. Why does he do this? It's interesting to see whenever this distance between God and man is talked about, the idea that God is hiding his face or God is distancing himself, you'll find it's associated with God's wrath or his anger. In Psalm 79, verse 5, we read, How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? And then if you go to Psalm 89, verse 46, How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Or you could go back to Psalm 22, in verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? You'll recognize those as the words that Jesus quotes on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And these are words that Jesus speaks. Theologians will tell you at the moment when he is enduring the wrath of God poured out on the sin that Christ is now bearing as our Passover lamb. So that distance has to do with God's righteous anger over sin. There's a reason why when we sense the distance, we naturally turn towards self-examination. We ask ourselves, what's going on? What have I done? Is God displeased with me? Questions like that. And oftentimes we're quick to move beyond that and assume, well, no, of course not. Of course, everything I've done is fine. Of course, God couldn't be displeased with me. But I want to suggest that in moments of introspection and self-examination, we shouldn't pass over those questions too lightly, but should take seriously the fact that, that there is a distance that exists because of sin. But there's another side to that as well. You see this in Revelation chapter 6, Verse 10, which is a song of the martyrs. Those who have been martyred now cry out to God. They sing to God. And this is their song 
Revelation 6, verse 10, they sing, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long? Again, how long? But what they're asking for is judgment, or to put it another way, justice. Justice. But so that the distance can be closed, there must be justice. God, as a holy judge, must do right. And so we recognize that as well. But seriously, how long? It's easy to be pious in moments like this and say to ourselves, well, we've got to be patient. We've got to trust in God. In the end, everything will work out, uh, which is true, but also can be strangely unsatisfying in moments of doubt and frustration and fear. However spiritually mature you felt before the coronavirus pandemic reached our region, now maybe we're a little less mature than we were, a little more afraid, a little more uncertain. Maybe the the easy answers start to feel a little hollow, whereas they felt pretty good before. We're not alone in that weakness, right? Jesus' disciples were weak. They couldn't watch for one hour with him. They couldn't stay focused for an hour. We've had a week to endure this new reality, a week of social distancing, and we're ready to be done, right? That was fine. It was an interesting experience, but we are ready for things to be back to normal. It's like we've done a live stream, Very unexpected. I didn't see that coming. We've done it, though, and it's time to get back to the way things are supposed to be. Because it's easy to endure anything for a moment. It's easy to be faithful for a moment. And it's hard to watch for an hour. Because as Jesus says, spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. You're probably feeling that weakness about now. The isolation, the social distancing. Even if you're convinced this is the right thing, this is what we ought to be doing, day in and day out, it's still hard. It's hard. It's not just learning the ropes of what you can and can't do. It's also, even once you know what you're supposed to do, actually doing it. I don't know about you, but I find myself often thinking, well, if everybody is staying indoors, it's probably okay for me not to, because anywhere I go, I won't encounter anybody. Seems like, like perfect. It's tough. It's tough to deal with. We're ready for it to be over. Even when you understand why you're doing what you're doing, making a sacrifice is still hard. And the kind of sacrifices we like to make are momentary, all or nothing. It is difficult to persist in sacrifice. And when you do, you find yourself crying out, how long? How long? And then the preacher quotes a psalm to you, and you're like, great, okay, but seriously, how long? There's an effect, in other words, that this takes, and the psalmist spells it out. It's not just that God is distant, it's that that distance has an effect on him. 
You forget me forever. You hide your face from me. And that forces me to take counsel in my own soul, to sorrow in my heart all the day, or to put this in more down-to-earth language. How long do I have to keep worrying? How long do I have to endure this anguish and anxiety in broad daylight? It's interesting, whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, the kind of distance we're talking about here takes an effect. There's a strange implication to these words that when God is distant from us, when God is removed from us, there's a corrosive inwardness, like a bad inwardness that we are forced to deal with because with God's removal comes the removal of confidence, which is replaced by doubt and uncertainty and fretting and sort of gnawing away at us. Even those of us who don't mind being alone with our thoughts, when God is distant, those thoughts turn on us and eat at us, gnaw at us. It's almost as if the gravity has shifted in your world. And you're used to it it moving. You're used to change. But the world is supposed to turn. It's supposed to spin. It's not supposed to wobble. And when God is removed, suddenly the ordinary movement is replaced by wobble, by doubt, uncertainty, as if everything is going to go off the rails. I love the fact that it's not just the effect on himself that the psalmist points out, but also the effect on his enemies. One of the things that's maybe hard for us to appreciate is the focus you find throughout the Psalms on the enemies and what the enemies are doing and the importance of punishing the enemies and not letting the enemies triumph over us. And we hear that talk and we think, well, that's very us versus them. That's not the way we think these days. But you have to remember that the enemies being referred to here are the enemies of God. They're the ones who reject him, the ones who work against him, the ones who hate him. So the longing for the enemy is to be put in their place is a longing for justice. It's a longing for the restoration of the way things are supposed to be. But, but that's not what's happening now. Because of the distance, not only do we find ourselves being eaten away at on the inside, but the enemies who are supposed to be checked, who are supposed to have justice done to them, instead, they start to celebrate. This is satisfying to them to witness. It used to be me and God against the world, but now the world is laughing at what's taking place, and that adds to the suffering. The psalmist here is saying to God, don't let them think they were right to doubt you. Don't let them think they were right to disobey you and to mock you and me. Instead, do something. And here's the request. It's interesting what it is that the psalmist asks for. He asks, lighten my eyes. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. It's a simple request to light up my eyes. In the metaphor that he's using, death is like sleep. When you go to sleep, your eyes start to close, right? they start to dim. And so he's asking for life by asking that his eyes be enlightened or, or, or lit up. 
so that he has life and not death. It's the same kind of language that's used in the book of 1 Samuel, in chapter 14, when Jonathan, Saul's son, eats of the honeycomb, the sweetness of the honeycomb, we're told it brightens his eyes. So the request for life is not just a request for life versus death. It's also a request for sweetness in the midst of suffering. Enlightenment that brings hope in the midst of suffering. Now, if distance speaks of wrath or anger, this kind of enlightenment proceeds from the law of God. You see this in Psalm 19, when the virtues of the law are being expounded. In verse 8, it says, The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. There's something about the purity of God's commands, that when we cherish them, our eyes are enlightened. Interestingly, not only is the the distance closed through the keeping and the cherishing of the law, but the distance is restored by grace because, of course, if the solution were simply to keep the law, that would be no solution at all because we're incapable of doing it. You see in the book of Ezra, chapter 9, that it is, in fact, by grace. Remember, this is after the exile, after the people of Israel have lost their kingdom and been scattered. And then God, in his grace, gathers them back together. Towards the end of that account in Ezra, there's a, a, a controversy, there's, there's a, a problem of, of mixed marriages. The, the law of God has not been obeyed the way that it ought to have been, and so the people, as they stand before God, are, are condemned. And yet, there is a grace that God shows them, nevertheless. The way Ezra puts it in this prayer, we'll just quote part of it in verse 8. He says, But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. Once again, interestingly, here's a use of the word remnant that is hopeful, not negative. We talked a couple of weeks when we looked at Romans 11 of the hopeful idea of God preserving a remnant, a remnant chosen by grace. And you can see this is the way Ezra looks at the people of Israel as well, as a remnant that has been preserved because God has shown favor because he has given this enlightenment that is being asked for. God has brightened our eyes. He has granted us a little reviving in our slavery. This is also the way that Paul talks about the gift of the Spirit. In Ephesians 1, Paul talks about the Spirit as giving enlightenment to the eyes. He says that when the eyes of your heart are enlightened by the Holy Spirit... You'll have faith and receive Christ's righteousness. Then you will know the hope to which he has called you and the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So the prayer for enlightenment is a prayer for the spirit to work. 
for the Spirit to give us the, the light to see, to trust, to believe in the God that we have already committed ourselves to, to trust, to know once more the hope that he has called us to. So it makes sense that in this moment of distance, this moment when the psalmist asks how long, that the thing he requests, the solution to the problem would be enlightenment, would be the lightening of the eyes, the hope that comes from the Holy Spirit reminding us, reminding us of God's faithfulness to his promises. It's not an accident that at this point the psalm shifts and suddenly it shifts into a note of praise. I have trusted in your steadfast love, in your, your hesed. We talked about it at our Thanksgiving Eve service, this, this complex Hebrew word, uh, steadfast love, faithfulness, covenant love of God. I have trusted in that, and because I've trusted in it, I will praise. I will rejoice. That's the rationale for his turn. The gospel message tells us something about distance, right? When we talk about covenant, as we've been talking about, it's important to remember that the covenant relationship between God and his people is a solution to the distance between the creator of all things and the fallen finite human beings that he's entered into relationship with. There's no way that we could have crossed that distance, but God, by grace, crosses it on our behalf. He comes down to us so that we might go up to him. He does that, of course, in the person of Jesus Christ. Christ has crossed the distance between God and humanity. Christ is the evidence that we have not been forgotten. We have not been neglected. Christ is the evidence that the Father's face is not turned from us. The Spirit testifies within us to the nearness of God, to his closeness to us, even in our times of sacrifice when we doubt it the most. Maybe especially in our times of sacrifice when we doubt it the most. The Spirit testifies that he is with us. The end of the psalm, it's as if the psalmist is saying that despite everything that my heart tells you, I trust in you. Despite the evidence of, of life all around me, I trust in you. And that changes everything. Not that the world has changed, not that the situation has changed, but the fact that I trust in you changes the way I see it all. Now there is no them, only you and I where he's been thinking about the enemies and what the enemies think in this final stanza, the enemies are gone. When he remembers his trust, suddenly there's only I and you. I have trusted in your steadfast love. I shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord. Completely different from what went before. Why? that change because you have dealt bountifully with me. 
Because of my trust in your steadfast love, I will rejoice and I will sing. I will not rejoice and sing because everything is fine, because it's been fixed, because I had a problem and I prayed and my problem went away. I will rejoice and I will sing because I trust in the promise of deliverance that is to come. And only that. It is only your steadfast love that gives me a reason. But that steadfast love is enough. The way the psalm is translated here, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me is accurate, but it does miss a little bit of of nuance in that final line because the, the verb tense there suggests a future completed action. So it's a little bit less uh, elegant, but it would give you a sense of this to hear the line this way. I will sing to the Lord because he will have dealt bountifully with me. So I will do this thing in the future because in the future, he will have done this thing. That's the expression of trust. I will sing, I will rejoice because what I'm trusting in now will have been done. God will have kept his promise to me. And that's why I worship him now. That's why I trust in him now. The praise at the end of the psalm and the praise in our hearts now is not based on the present situation. It has to be based on our faith in the future outcome. I've been talking about the psalmist and what the psalmist says. And of course, this is a psalm of David. David was the anointed king. In our lectionary reading earlier, we heard that anointing story where David was chosen, the the least of all his brothers, yet God chose him and anointed him. That word anointing in Hebrew is the word that we get Messiah from. So David is the messianic king, sort of the, the example of what a good king should be. When we talk about Jesus as the Messiah who was longed for, what they were longing for was a, a new David, a restoration of what was lost, the kingdom that was lost, and, and, and a new king on the throne who would rule as David ruled. Interestingly, though, once Christ comes, we start seeing the Psalms differently. I said earlier that Jesus quotes Psalm 22 on the cross, which is technically true. But I think, although there's a chronological truth to it, there's also something a little deceptive about putting it that way. Because the Spirit inspired the words. Right? Jesus spoke the words originally in Psalm 22. If he's quoting anything, he's quoting himself. But I think the psalm was given to us in anticipation of the fulfillment when he spoke those words, not the other way around. The the meaning, the fullness of the psalm depends upon Jesus's utterance, not the other way around. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of all these things. And there's a sense in which the psalmist is Christ. And the Psalms are not just our songs, but are Christ's songs, expressing not only our heart, but his heart for us. As a result of that, 
when we look at the Psalms and we think of them in, in the voice of Christ, they ring out to us differently. We recognize that in order to bring us close to God, Christ came down and became one of us. But also in order to do that, he experienced distance. Jesus embraced distance in order that he might bring us across that distance in order to be near to God. We struggle right now to endure just a taste of distance, just a little bit of distancing, and it seems like it's too much. It's too strict. But as you struggle with it, remember, this is just a taste of what Jesus endured in order to close the distance between us and our Lord. And remember this too. We may be in an unprecedented situation. No one uh, alive today, certainly in the United States, has quite this kind of an experience in their background. We're all going through this together for the first time. But we're actually not going through something that is unprecedented for our people because we belong to the church of Jesus Christ and the body of Christ has endured much more than this. The body of Christ stretches back 2,000 years, in a sense stretches back before the foundation of the world. And during that time, the body of Christ has learned very well how to wait, how to endure. We've sung along the way, how long? How long, Lord? How long, O sovereign Lord, will you wait? We've got good at singing that song. And the fact that it's here in scripture means you don't need to feel bad that you're singing it now. You're just joining a chorus that is long established. So it's okay to sing how long. It's okay to ask, how long is this going to last? We're not the first Christians to ask that question, and we won't be the last either. But at the same time, as we sing that song, let's remember how the song ends. Let's remember that the plea ends in praise. And it ends by reminding us of where our trust is found. It reminds us that in our struggle, we must put our trust in the steadfast love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.